I have the privilege of introducing Bauer. Um, I've known Bauer longer than most pastor friends I have. I mean, because uh, I got to know Bauer. I've known you probably for like 10 years now, nine, 10 years. And uh, Bauer, um, I met him through Paul at King of Grace uh, when I was still a uh, Green Seminary student. And something that really stood out to me from my, even from my early interactions with Bauer is um, just uh, his humility and uh, how, um, uh, I remember whenever we would um, go to a conference together or attend a seminar together, I could always hear Bauer's uh, keyboard just in the back because he's always taking copious notes. And, and even though he already knows so much and has learned so much, He's always learning. He's always a student of God's word. And, uh, and also, even though I was such a young you know, seminary student, he always treated me with so much respect, which is, he didn't need to, but he did. And I just, just I remember that. And it just stands out to me uh, about Bauer. Bauer has been pastoring for 21 years. He's been ordained for 21 years. He's been in the same church, Crossway Church, that you know, Bailey was a part of at one point, and Will that part of at one point, Will is obviously Bauer's son, and uh, um, and and you know, I mean, there's increasingly a lot of pastors think of pastoring as a as a profession, and you try to climb the ladder in the same way, and 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 time and time again, I'll see sometimes pastors go to greener pastures, whether it's out of New England or to a bigger church or to where you can get paid more or where you could have less to do with directly with people, you know, or it's just people always doing that, but Bauer. It's been the same church, uh, his entire pastoral ministry, 21 years. I look up to that, and I aspire to that, and, uh, and, and that's a testament to your calling, God-given call, but your character, Bauer. Uh, we're grateful for you. Uh, so uh, it's my uh, joy to, to welcome you to our retreat, to be our speaker. Thank you. Please come. Thank you for that kind welcome, Sean. Those are very meaningful words. One of, uh, one of my uh, reflections on our history uh, together, I don't know where we were when we had this conversation, but there was a uh, phrase that was attributed to you as I was trying to understand more deeply our, our understanding of Scripture. And, um, and I think the phrase, Sean, I don't want to attribute something that doesn't accurately reflect what you said, but... Um, in essence, uh, what I took from it was that uh, all scripture is covenantal in nature. And that phrase, like a key, like a master key that unlocks all the doors in the houses, I just began to turn it uh, both in the Old Testament and new after our conversation, also in my reading uh, and study, and began to look at scripture over time from, from more as how scripture operates on us. Uh, in, in a dynamic way through uh, King Jesus than simply me approaching the text and, and pulling from it. And uh, it was one of those inflection points in, in, your, uh, in our journey. So I appreciate you taking what was a very uh, thick understanding, kind of narrowing it down that I could start to... to is, that, is that... Did you say that? Yeah. Is that Jeff? And you were quoting Jeff? <laughs> well, Jeff Percival then, through his brother. Jeff didn't say that or I didn't listen when I was with Jeff uh, in the same way. So that was a, let me, uh, let me begin uh, this way. Um, 
I was praying on the way up, as I'm sure many of you were, taking in the beauty of uh, the leaves and, and the less uh, beauty of the traffic. Um, and um, I was thinking about how best to uh, begin a time with you um, uh, on mission mindfulness, for I'm here to learn too and hear from the Lord and engage with you uh, afresh this topic. And I was thinking about, and we've been thinking about this as a church, what Paul meant when he said to the Corinthians in his second letter uh, in chapter 12, I know a man in Christ. I know a man in Christ. And then he introduces 14 years earlier a vision he'd been given. When Paul speaks of being a a Christian, uh, he never says of himself, I'm a Christian, like we would. It doesn't mean what we're saying is wrong. Um, he, he never uses that phrase. Uh, when the word Christian came into use, you know, because you, you studied the book of Acts as a church, it was in the, the church in Antioch where that word Christian first came into use. Uh, but up to that time, People who were Christians were called people of the way, which is found in scripture, or disciples. And Paul uses neither of those to refer to himself. He refers to himself almost without exception in terms of his identity as being in Christ. Um, and so I was reflecting on that as I thought about beginning our, and I thought 41 years ago, uh, as a senior in high school, uh, a man who was in Christ shared with me during a study hall in the cafeteria of our high school, uh, the message of the gospel. And if you knew me as a senior in high school, there's no reason why I should have listened to anything George said in that moment, except George was the individual who sold us our, our weekend supply of hashish uh, and was a devout fan of, uh, this will date me, but the Jackson 5, and we liked the Jackson 5 in the 1970s. George had become a Christian earlier that month, and there he is with me in study hall at a cafeteria table reading from the Bible, from the Gospel of John, and calling me to repent of my sins and put my hope in Jesus. And I shouldn't have been listening, but I know a man in Christ, and he, Christ, had my attention. Two weeks later, I'm in a meeting with I don't know, probably 500 or more people, not much, not much younger than you. And Phil Perry and the other pastor, Paul, who's, I forget his last name, uh, gave a gospel message uh, to primarily public school students there in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Uh, this was a church plant, not unlike Trinity, and the, everyone had been invited uh, by people like George to come to this meeting and boy, the message was crystal clear. There was a clear invitation given, and I didn't respond to it at that moment, but I know a man in Christ who when he went home that night, Jesus revealed himself. And 41 years ago, I repented of my sins, tears flowing out of my tear ducts in my bedroom 
That next morning, I got up and greeted my parents, who at that point I was alienated from my parents, even though I lived in their home. And I said, Mom, Dad, brace yourself. Um, This is the only language I knew. I'm a born-again Christian now. And I might as well told them I was a communist. I mean, they were, you're a what? And they didn't believe it, but I know a man in Christ. 41 years later, last story, just introduce mission mindfulness. We shared the gospel with my parents because all of my sisters came to the Lord by God's grace, different ways. One through me, which is remarkable since she hated me prior to Christ, <laughs> and the other through John Stott's ministry uh, there in All Souls Church in London uh, at a time when she was being proposed to by a a very wealthy young Muslim man there in Europe who was in love with Bobby, and yet she's sitting under the preaching of the gospel through John Stott and realizing if I choose this way, she didn't, she became a Christian, she's walking with the Lord now, as is my youngest sister Day, Uh, but my parents both came to the Lord, and the reason I should share this is because my dad, who rejected Christianity for his entire life, and, and although loved his kids, um, would always say to us, I don't want to hurt your faith, but I think what you believe is totally bananas. He said a little more strongly than that, if you knew my dad. He was a lawyer, corporate lawyer in Philadelphia, uh, big man, um, kind of a John Wayne sort of figure, if you know who that is. So the last summer before he died, we shared with him again. We all shared with him in different ways, the, the, the simple message of the gospel. We called them to believe in Christ. We said, There's a, even mom believes now, Dad. Please. He got angry. He got abusive. Uh, we couldn't tell if it was the alcohol he was drinking. We couldn't tell if it was just... Um, turned out that at that point, his lungs had deteriorated due to a 40-year habit of smoking Lucky Strikes. That's an unfiltered cigarette. He, was, he had about 13% capacity in his lungs. He was basically suffocating. Couldn't exp- but we didn't know that. This physician on the main line had... You'll have to edit this out. Basically, he lied to him about his, the condition of his health. And uh, I visited Dad in the hospital there that fall and basically said goodbye to him. He was in and out of consciousness. We are putting him on oxygen, but he was fading. Drove home, and my phone went off, and it's my sister, Day, who... And she says, you are not going to believe this. And I said, what? I just drove six hours. And, and she said, Dad wants to talk to you. Dad wants to talk to me. He, he, he came too? And there's my dad without his oxygen on. And he says, Bauer, I want to become a Christian. And then my sister, you know, is doing this thing with the phone, you know. And I, I, I asked my dad in so many words, probably the wrong question, Sean. I'm not a very effective evangelist. Deb, why do you want to become a Christian? And why he was unconscious or in that, he was aware of eternity in a way that we had spoken to him for years about, but that his eternity was Christless and that our eternity was in Christ. And so there on his deathbed, a man who was unconscious coming to, due to being oxygenated, he repented of his sins, confessed Christ for the first time as Savior, and he went on to live for another two or three weeks. And so we brought in every Christian we knew 
to, to really test his faith, to see if this was sincere. We'd read scripture to him. We talk about counting the cost. We, we challenged him. And I know a man in Christ. It was my dad. So before conversion, we hear the invitation, come to me, all of you who are weary and laden. Matthew 11, come to me, Christ says, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and it, I'm, for I'm gentle and lowly, humble in heart. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. But then when you walk through that door by God's grace and you look back at Ephesians 1, it doesn't say come to me anymore. From beginning to end, from before the foundation of the world to when we're face to face with Christ. If you're a Christian and you put your trust in Christ, it says you are in Christ. It's our identity. It's, it's so mysterious and yet it's so gloriously gospel-centered that that really becomes the basis for me of standing here before you to talk about mission mindfulness, not because only I responded 41 years ago to a gospel call, but because I can say with the Apostle Paul, as can you, we know a person in Christ by God's grace. It's, it's, it's us. It's a miracle. So please open in your scriptures to Matthew 5. I'm going to pray, and then we'll look at the passage together. Over the next uh, three days, and then again on uh, Sunday, we're going to look at this from some different vantage points. We'll use Jesus' Sermon on the Mount to get us started, both today and tomorrow, and then we'll consider one of his parables of the kingdom. Let me read the scripture. I'm going to read for the sake of context. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 16. But I'm going to focus tonight on verses 13 through 16, which are familiar words to you and I hope make some meaningful application for our our small uh, group time together uh, as we go. This is God's word. May God give us his grace to listen attentively to it. Seeing the crowds, verse 1 of chapter 5, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, you call us to join you in your mission. And for those of us, I presume most of us, if not all of us, who have put our faith in you, Lord, it is not only a privilege, joining you in your mission is part of who we are. So grant us, grant us, Lord, by your spirit of illumination, a deeper perspective, understanding, and vision for this mission you have joined us to and and use us individually and collectively to call others into your glorious light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That's my main point. Uh, I'll repeat it again uh, at the end of the message, and I'll introduce it again um, uh, this morning as we'll look at the first 11 verses, first 12 verses of uh, this Sermon on the Mount, uh, is that Jesus calls us to join him and his mission uh, in everyday ways. And this evening, I just want to introduce this idea of salt and light, which I'm sure is familiar to many of you, but give you perhaps a a fresh um, perspective on that, and then make some fresh applications through an illustration or two, and then um, set you up for some discussion. Um, In verse 13, as we just read, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And so the question that, that we ask of Scripture when we see a statement like that is, what does Jesus mean by salt? Uh, it may surprise you, one of the commentators I consulted when I did this message uh, for Crossway um, in, uh, the, at the beginning of the year in the ancient world, there are actually 11 options for what salt could refer to here. 11 different options, which in light of the reductionist tendency of modern day evangelicalism today, that number shocked me because most people assume it's one thing when actually in the ancient world, the original hearers could have heard preservation, which salt certainly functions as with meat, but it was also used in sacrifices. Salt was added to Old Testament Ritual sacrifice, it's a symbol for peace, friendship, even wisdom. So with that in mind, uh, and without a lot of time to walk us through all 11, I think Jesus is quite clear in what he means when he says of salt that salt, to be salt, can be tasted says, if salt has lost its taste, it's right there in the text, how shall saltiness be restored? So, if we are to be salt in our mission mindfulness, then there must be something about our lives that's tasty. 
Imagine I invited you. I'm having a hard time, Gary, with this uh, mic, just because I'm very. I use a lot of mannerisms, so I apologize. Imagine if I invited you over for an Easter dinner, which we did with dear friends. I don't think it was your parents, um, Bailey, but it was someone like that. And uh, we love having people uh, in for uh, for meals, as I'm sure many of you do. Hospitality is a privilege, and it got to be dessert. And Linda had made uh, a, a type of, is it good? Awesome. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> Linda had made a casserole for dessert. I think it was, it was kind of like coffee cake. That's probably not what it was. She'll be here tomorrow, which she can now correct me on my illustration. Um, and uh, the... The individual, uh, the male individual, dove into this before any of us had an opportunity to take a taste of it, and he took a very large bite. I'm not sure he chewed it quite as thoroughly as he should have, and he swallowed it, and he started choking on our table, which I don't know any first aid, so uh, I kind of looked at Linda like, I... If, <laughs> If he's going to die at our table over your dessert, I'm not of any use here. And he spit out on the plate what he had been chewing, which that's usually a sign that it's something's very wrong. And he starts laughing. And we ask him, what's wrong? What are you laughing about? And he says, your, your coffee cake, your casserole, doesn't have cinnamon it's full of red-hot chili pepper. And Linda's jaw dropped, and I was like, really? What a great prank. So I took a big bite, and I threw it in. I goes, oh, my gosh. It's like it was just throat-burning, flame-hot. So the point is simple. If you trust in Christ... When people get a taste of your life, they should notice something very distinct. The world notices distinct flavors. So what is it about our lives that cause our coworkers or fellow students or Tony the 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 Uber driver, who if there's time, I'll share a story, which you probably is not wait till tomorrow. Or I'll change your name. Sarah, the, the classroom student. Or someone in your family member that's belligerent when you share the gospel with them and is angry. Or a neighbor who mistreats you. What stands out? It's when we obey the commands of Christ in ways that they recognize. The point is simple here. There should be no diluted disciples. This is not a command. This is an indicative. If you're a Christian, you are salt in Christ. I am salt in Christ. Trinity is salt in Christ. The red-hot chili pepper is in us already. And when we obey the commands of Christ in relationship with others, they taste it. 
Of course, there's a lot of things we can do as Christians that aren't explicitly connected to a command, and they may sense it there too. But there are those clear commands in Scripture that when we obey it in our culture, in relationship with others, oh, they see it. And then they have to respond to it. Jesus doesn't just call us, right, salt here. He doesn't just tell us to be who we are. He says that we're also the light of the world. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And then he goes on to talk about a lamp, not putting it under a basket, uh, but giving light to all the house. So, so Jesus calls us the light. He doesn't say be the light. He says, this is who you are. You are visible. I have made you visible through my work of regeneration, big words for my work of gracious gospel conversion, a new heart, a new mind, new affections, a new orientation, and then are growing into that identity. As Christians, we're visible and we are salty. Jesus puts it this way in, in verse 16, then, as he rounds out this, this brief teaching, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the connection between our tastefulness and our visibility is our good works, which gives glory to God the Father in heaven. And the good works, I just want to suggest to us, are the good works of obedience to the commands Jesus gives us in this most fundamental of sermons, like you must love your enemies. You must love them, and I must too. Our friend Edward, Bailey knows Edward, is a Dominican. He moved to a neighborhood uh, near where I live, where although the Dominican um, is the largest minority uh, group there in uh, that community, uh, they are not the majority race in that community. Um, he would be lower income, but the way this community is laid out is you can have higher income across the street from lower income, mixed neighborhoods, missing income, and it was trash day. And my brother Edward put his trash out with his little recycle can. And like me, I love trash day. He was excited to see his trash carted away. Came home that night from work and someone had moved his trash can and put it where the trash truck wouldn't see it and there was still trash in the can and still a bucket full of recycles. And he thought, that's weird. Oh, that would be very disappointing for me. I always look forward to coming home to empty trash cans, empty recycles. My wife says, I have a trash fetish. <laughs> Put him out again the next week. Now he had two cans of trash and two buckets of recycles. Goes off to work, comes back 12 hours later. And the trash cans have been moved again and the trash hasn't been picked up. And now he's getting suspicious, like, who's messing with my trash, right? I mean, there's nothing more infurious to an American than messing with their trash, so the next week, he decides to stay home from work. I don't know, maybe he was sick. Now he's got three cans of trash and three things of recycles, and he's watching in the window, and there across the street comes his neighbor 
who is a different race and upper income, and he moves Edward's trash. And he moves it to the back where the trash truck won't see it. And Edward, who is a very godly man, gets very angry. And I don't know the Spanish language very well, but I suspect his wife does. And what she was hearing coming out of Edward's mouth in that moment was not, bless you, O Father, for my neighbors, but I am going to give that man the business. And Lillian says to her husband, Edward, I think you need to pray to the Lord before you go confront him because God brought us here, not only this country, but to this neighborhood to love our neighbors and to share the gospel with them. And if you go into that conversation angry at him and hate him and begin a fight with him, well, that's, that's not why we're here. And so he prays, he's convicted of his anger because he's really angry, like any American is when you mess with their trash. And the Lord convicts him, breaks his heart, he then goes out to the man, uh, not as an angry, you know, trash defending, um, but as a person who realizes I am salt and I am light and I am called to love my enemies. And he confronts the man and he says, you know, I saw you move my trash and I was angry with you, but I'm a Christian. I'm an evangelical Christian. And Jesus loves you. He died for you. And he wants me to tell you that. And I want to ask you, because I love you too, why are you moving my trash? (laughs) You know what he said? He said, I've been watching your family every Sunday, dressed up so nicely, getting into your minivan and driving off to church. And I've been saying to my radio audience, I have a radio show on Sunday, that I live across the street from a Christian, from an evangelical, and they're all hypocrites because they don't love their enemies. They hate their enemies. And I only need to mess with their trash to expose how hypocritical they really are. That's convicting. But he didn't stop there. He said, but now I have to tell my audience I met a real Christian, someone who really does love his neighbor. Even when I was doing something that to him could have been hurtful. Can you imagine where Edward could have gone? He could have said, this man's moving my trash because we're a different race. This man's moving my trash because we're a different income level. This man's moving my trash because we don't agree politically. This man's messing with my property for every reason that seems to fracture our culture and fracture the church today. And instead, he encountered a Christian who was who he was supposed to be, salt and light, and obeying Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's no invisible Christians. If you're a Christian, you're on display. And there's no Christians that don't taste differently because we are the salt. But the call here, right? Jesus calls us to join us in his mission in everyday ways. Is there anything more any every day than putting out your trash? To join him in everyday ways in our relationship with others as those who are in Christ. I know a church in Christ. It's Trinity Cambridge. And the Lord providentially has put you in relationships with dozens, if not more, of non-believers in work, in neighborhood, and in life. May God, by his grace, give us the ability to taste differently and look differently and obey Christ differently for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, as we begin this weekend of mission mindfulness First, Lord, we are humbled and grateful that you are mindful of us in calling us to yourself through the clear, compelling, transforming message of the good news of the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross in our place. You being the perfect, obedient, unique son of God. Thank you, Lord, for in dying and being buried, being raised again, that we would not only be forgiven of our sins, but receive, Lord, righteousness through faith and adoption into your family and a new identity as sons and daughters as part of your glorious kingdom. Help us, Lord, now as we go to our small groups to to not think so much about perhaps what the text means so that important, but give us eyes to see what are the, the little and maybe not so little ways that we are visible to others, that our lives are, are in a sense, flavoring their experience of you. And use us, Lord, to call them into your glorious kingdom. Encourage us, Lord, as we meet in small groups to be missionally mindful. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen.